the first sighting didn't happen until 1937. She was first encountered by the library's custodian very early in the morning, so it was dark. He went down into the basement with his flashlight and encountered a woman standing in front of the furnace that he was there to take care of. Uh, he realized that his flashlight beam could shine right through her. He ended up leaving the employment of the library and citing as his reason for doing that, seeing the ghost and having nobody in the city believe him. So that's the beginning of the Grey Lady story. Welcome to Anything But Silent, from the British Library with me, Cleo Laskarin. In today's episode, we've paranormal activity, spells and spirituality, as we conjure a world of magic and mythology at the library. The clip you just heard, believe it or not, is from my very own online ghost hunt. I spoke to librarians in Evansville, Indiana, to hear about the Lady in Grey. More on that coming up. And I'll give you forewarning, that interview didn't go quite as we expected. Later in this episode, we'll also be taking a trip to the historic town of Glastonbury in southwest England. Glastonbury is well known for its connections to the historic legends of King Arthur and Merlin, as well as Joseph of Arimathea. But in this podcast, we'll be visiting a place very much at the epicenter of modern spirituality and occult practices, the Library of Avalon. But before all that, I thought it was only fitting for me to prepare for this journey by consulting some of our very own magical texts here at the British Library. I met with Curator of Modern Archives and Manuscripts, Alexander Locke. nice to see you, Alex. Hi. Um, so on this podcast, we talk about the joy and magic of libraries. But in this episode, we want to talk a little bit more about magic in a literal sense. Um, and you've picked out a few things from the British Library's collection to talk to us about. But before we go there, is there any magic in what you do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the, the emphasis on texts and magic is that what texts contain is, is always magical, isn't it? Enlightening yourself, learning about the world, learning about things you never knew before, that's, that's magic. And I suppose that's partly why a lot of early modern manuscripts and, and later manuscripts are so heavily explored and, and engaged with, because there's, there's always this what is unknown, what is out there that we don't know and which we can learn, and often that is kept and transmitted through the ages through books and texts. If you look, think about some of the manuscripts we're going to look at today, the relationship between science and magic is very, very close. And I, I was thinking, you know, what, what is your definition of magic? And I guess it's something that is engaging with the paranormal, the unusual. But something is only paranormal if it is beyond normal, if it's unreproducible in a scientific way. But you only find out what is scientific and what is magical by doing these sort of crazy experiments in, in alchemy or by invoking demons through texts <laughs> to try and help yourself in certain directions. And when it doesn't work, well, it's rubbish, it doesn't work, or it's magic, it worked one off. And when it does work many, many times, well, that's science. So the reason that I wanted to come in and talk to you today was to sort of look at some of the amazing historical, magical manuscripts that we have in our collection. So maybe we can take a look? Yeah, definitely, yeah. What, have we, what have we got here? Well, that is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> now, here we have 
a manuscript, a, a magical manuscript made by a man called Heinrich Kunrath, who was a late 16th, early 17th century alchemist and physician. And what we've got here is a very, very unusual type of manuscript. It's pretty big, it's very, very colourful, it's highly decorated, but it's not entirely clear why he used it or how he used it and what he was invoking when he used it. But it's clearly something magical, it's something paranormal, it's something occult, and it's in relationship to the scientific practices, alchemy, medicine, that he's engaged with. So what have we got here? Okay, so this is, the whole volume is a collection of separate manuscripts all relating to magic. Mm -hmm. And one of the coolest ones is, is, is this one, it's early on in the book, which is called The Key of Knowledge or, or the, the Book of Solomon. Okay. And what it effectively is, is a series of spells. It's a spell book. It's an early modern spell book. It dates from about 1600, so near contemporaneous with Heinrich Kunrath. And it just tells you how to do certain spells. What have we got? There's one here which tells you an experiment or spell for hatred or prepared that may be made deadly against enemies. Oh, wow. So this could be quite dangerous in the wrong hands. It definitely could be. Right. I mean, alternatively, above it, there is an experiment of favour and friendship. So how oh. to make friends. It's quite a useful one. And... <laughs> On this page, there's, there's one on how and by what means experiments of love ought to be wrought, as well as in getting her whom thou desirest, in touching her in her sleep, or that talking with her. Do you think this works, this particular spell? Which one? The love the, spell? The love spell, yeah. Well, should we have a go? Well, I don't know. It, it seems could, risky. It, it could be dangerous, yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I can't have you following me around the library all the time. I don't know, perhaps we should do See, the friendship one. Yeah, 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 one. let's try the friendship one. Okay. That seems like a safer <laughs> bet. <laughs> so it tells you on various ways to prepare for this, and then the okay. spell says, Sata arepo tenet rotas toth eth hi val yak ya ta 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 ena renaton. And then you, you say the name of your friend. Gasper. Are you going to say my name? Oh, okay, yeah, sorry, yeah. Cleo. Yeah. And then you've got to finish the spell, which okay. is Gasper, <laughs> Balthazar, Melchior, Gion, Sison, Tigris, Euphrates. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm feeling friendly. That could have worked. Yeah. <laughs> so the next things I want to show you are not so much related to magic, but certainly related to the paranormal, to research into uh -huh. ghosts an idea surrounding spiritualism, which is communicating with the dead. Cool. The library has a, a big archive of material relating to, to the Ghost Club, uh -huh. which is a club set up in 1882 to research the paranormal, the occult, but especially ghosts and you know communication with the ghosts. Right. It was set up by a man called William Staten Moses, who was an Anglican vicar, but also led seances, which is quite interesting. Right. And, um, <laughs> and another friend he, he set up with was a man called A.A. A. Watts, who was a clerk at the Inland Revenue and also a spiritualist, and also tried to communicate with, with, with the dead. Okay. But the club grew over time and did attract some, you know, some important members, one of whom was W.B. Yeats, who's probably one of the most famous. And he's obviously the, the, the great Irish poet who uses occult or occult imagery within his poetry and who was, was interested in spiritualism, you know, from an early age and throughout his life. Okay, 
So here are the the rules of the club. This is a long rule book. It is. Well, you've got to, you know you've got to be careful. You've yeah. got to be diligent when you're working with ghosts. Yeah. So that the club be called the Ghost Club. Point one. That no proposed ghost shall be eligible for election until he shall have present at least one at a dinner of the club. So are they referring to members as ghosts? Uh, yeah, they are. Yeah. They're not referring to the dead. They're not, not referring to the dead. Though they, oh, okay. Though they do have seances to communicate with former members. Right, but, but they I'm, also I'm, refer to each other as ghosts. As ghosts, yeah. As okay. Ghosts. That the proceedings shall usually include the narration of some physical matter or personal experience or general interest each ghost contributing according to his ability. So you've got to come with a ghost story, with an anecdote, or with some evidence of paranormal activity. Otherwise you're ousted. That's it for you. Yeah, otherwise, you know, what are you, what are you bringing to the table? Yeah, if you're not communing with the spirits, you can't come to my dinner party. So what kinds of st stories and anecdotes were people coming to the meetings with? Uh, well, they were coming with all sorts of things. There's, there's recording of a, of a spectral cat in India. They, they even explore and research yoga. And what have you got on this, on this particular page? On this page? page, we've got... So the president asked Brother Simmet if he had received any information from the higher powers regarding the state of public affairs in Russia and elsewhere. Brother Simmet said the Bolshevik movement was to be looked upon as a black attack. The general social upheaval going on all over the world was due to a divine intention. But what that intention was, it's... Uh, Unclear. Yeah, I don't think Brother Sinnott knew. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah, that they're engaging with this stuff for their own means to understand the social situation in which they're in. And, of course, this meeting is just after the First World War. It's during the time of the Russian Revolution and, and Civil War there. So there are things to be concerned and frightened about. And of course, after the First World War, where a lot of young people have, you know, have been killed and a lot of people are, are missing, engaging with the afterlife and with spirits is, becomes very, very popular because, again, it is a way of getting some sort of control over a, an uncontrollable situation, a very sad and, and upsetting one. Yeah, I guess I've never really thought about that. I think I've always thought about the, like, ooh, spooky, fun, a seance thing, but as a way to sort of help you grieve. In a time when you've lost a lot of people, I guess there's a lot of power there. Yeah, it's very, yeah. And of course, you know, these practices are still engaged with today. People still believe in them. You can go anywhere and have your palm read to understand your future. I'm sure seances to communicate with past loved ones is also still very popular. It, there's something within human nature, I think, which draws us towards magic, towards the supernatural, towards the paranormal as a way of coping you know, with a world that, you know, that is very... Um, very scary at times. Thanks to Alexander Locke, curator of modern archives and manuscripts here at the British Library. I really liked seeing these manuscripts. They were beautiful and really interesting and full of mystery. But it was the Ghost Club archive, in all its weirdness, that particularly captured my attention. In fact, it made me want to start my own paranormal investigation. In our next story, we head to the Willard Library in Evansville, Indiana, to meet their most famous patron. So it is 7.45 right now in London, and I've gotten up early to go on the computer 
because it's 1.45 in Evansville, Indiana right now. And there's this library where it's reputed that there's a ghost called the Lady in Gray who haunts the library. And so they've put together this website where you can watch on their webcams and try and spot her. So that's what I'm doing this morning. Um, and I wanted to do this when it was really sort of the witching hour in this library and there's no one there. So we're going on a ghost hunt and we're gonna find some ghosts, if we're lucky. I feel like I'm in Ghostbusters, but like the all-female remake, obviously. The first sighting didn't happen until 1937. She was first encountered by the library's custodian and it was his job to come in early in the morning, in the winter, to uh, stoke the coal fire furnace to get the building warm for the upcoming day. This is Greg Hager, the director of Willard Library. And it was one such trip into the building very early in the morning, so it was dark. He went down into the basement with his flashlight and encountered a woman standing in front of the furnace that he was there to take care of. And he would describe her as being female, wearing a gray Victorian-style dress, Victorian-style lace-up shoes, and had some kind of a, a veil or a gauzy material covering her facial features. Uh, he realized that his flashlight beam could shine right through her, and uh, after seeing this, after having this encounter, which he did not feel good about, in the words of, of 1937, he took to drink. And he ended up leaving the employment of the library and citing as his reason for doing that, seeing the ghost and having nobody in the city believe him when he told that story. So that's the beginning of the Grey Lady story. From then on, the sightings increased. Running taps, flickering lights, the smell of cheap perfume. But who is the mysterious Grey Lady? One popular theory takes us back to the origin of the library itself. Construction started in 1877, funded by a local businessman and philanthropist, Willard Carpenter. By late 1883, Willard died of a stroke, leaving the majority of his estate to help complete the construction of his beloved library. His daughter, Louise Carpenter, felt she didn't get her fair share. Growing increasingly resentful of the library, she sued and lost. Some say that Louise, still nursing a grudge, haunts the library to this day. I started out 12 years ago not really believing that there was anything in particular at Willard Library. And one of the uh, questions in my interview that Greg, Greg asked me was, do you believe in ghosts? And I said, well, I said, I'll keep an open mind. I said, I've never seen one. And it doesn't help that my son's a pastor anyway. So I was like, no, I, I, I'll, just, I'll just keep an open mind and I'll, I'll let you know, you know, that kind of thing. So I gave the political answer. That's Rhonda Mort. She works in the most haunted department of the library, the children's library. In 2014, uh, my coworker and I, we were the only ones in the library, and I was shelving books in the stacks. And she was sitting over by our security monitors. And she has been here for almost 40 years. 
she is very soft-spoken and mild-mannered. And she called me over and she was like, Rhonda, come here right now. I mean, she was like very direct in her seeking my attention. So I ran over and looked at the monitor that she pointed at. And she said, what do you see? And my mouth dropped open and the hair on the back of my neck stood up because what I saw was a woman standing at the door. We have a ramp door that's down there in the basement. And she was very beautiful, very young. But the the thing that really freaked me out is that you could see the brick mortar lines through her. She was completely transparent. And we stood there and stared at this figure at the door for like over a minute. I mean, neither one of us could really speak. And I managed to say, is that her? And Miss Anita turned and looked at me, and she just nodded. She didn't say anything. And then we both looked back at the camera. Well, after staring at her, I I guess it was more on two minutes, the gray lady, or the figure at the door, turned and looked at the camera. And when she did that, her face disappeared. It got entirely black. Well, I had known from listening to the stories that that was one of the things that people had said about the gray lady, that if she looks directly in your eyes, her, you can't see her face. It's like straight on. You can't. We could see her in profile plainly. She was beautiful. But when she looked at the camera and essentially looked at us, her face just disappeared. And then Miss Anita turned to me and she said, Miss Rhonda, she says, I have a half day coming. I am out of here. So she left me at the, at the desk by myself for the rest of the day. If people ask me now if I believe in the Grey Lady, I say yes, because if seeing's believing, how can I deny, you know, what I saw? So my son even asked me, he says, you really believe in that now? And I said, well, there was something there and it looked like a woman who was transparent. Ghost hunters travel from all over the world to catch a glimpse of the spirit as she walks the stacks. And those who can't stay up late on the library ghost hunting website, reporting sightings on the webcams, chatting in forums. Hunting for ghosts. Gonna refresh the cameras? There's a group that comes, they're called the Willard Library Ghost Chatters. They're kind of fans of not just not just our ghosts, but of the library. They all met in a chat room specifically set up for people that were watching our ghost cams. And we have a number of cameras connected to the internet and they're uh, scattered throughout the building. So internationally, this, this ghost is recognized. The, this group of people, they come from all over. The, the leader of the group actually comes from Canada, comes down from Canada every year. Yeah, they've been coming for 20 years just for the ghost. So that's that's cool. That's it's it's nice to have that kind of fan base, and a lot of people, have, of course, heard the stories. And and you know, this is a very accessible place. We're a public library. We're open every day. People can come here just about any time and see for themselves. Let's do the stairs. The stairs are the spookiest bit. Oh, something definitely just moved through the stairwell. One of my favorite stories is that one day, two library assistants were working in the children's department, taking books and putting them on carts, and wheeling the books to the children's desk, which is right by the, the entrance to, to the department, so they could see if anybody came in or left. And they had been doing this for about 45 minutes and had then returned to the, to the area that they were uh, working in to discover about every fourth book pulled out from the top at a perfect angle throughout this entire alcove, almost as if a librarian might have gone through there and selected those books 
to be withdrawn. One of the library assistants was a complete non-believer. She was a, a very serious young lady, really did not believe in the ghost at all. And there was a, quite a bit of uproar. I was actually uh, in the process of conducting an interview with a local television station about our upcoming book sale. And we were standing in another area in the basement, so I could hear this uproar from the children's department when they discovered these books being out at an angle. And this very serious young lady, by the time I got in there, was pale, she was shaking. She had shoved all the books back immediately because she had no, no rational explanation for what happened. And of course, the film crew had followed me in, and the, and the camera person had followed me in, and and, and began recording and taking, like doing an interview about because here's the gray lady making an appearance. Oh my gosh, we're we're here with a, it. Just so happens to be a television station. And I got her call from the reporter that evening, and what she had to tell me was that the book sale piece was just fine. The interview for the book sale was great but the, the interview that they had done with the library assistants and filming where the incident had taken place, all of that was gone. We get a lot of reports of that. People's batteries dying, draining, video not appearing. You know, people tell us that all the time. I mean, that's, that's, that's a normal occurrence. And with a furrowed brow, I ask, will the gray lady tamper with this interview? We'll see. We will see. We're not in the children's area, so we have a better chance. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah, we're actually coming to you from my office. So, yeah. uh, you know, anybody can tell you there's nothing happening in this office. <laughs> That's kidding. what he says. <laughs> so That's how he can laugh at the rest of us. But here's where it gets strange. To help us record this interview, we hired a local sound recordist, Jackson Fleming. Jackson's day started out as expected. He packed his equipment into his Mustang and set off to the library. So I'm packing everything in. I'm so excited. And I, I went, I'm on my way. And I ended up rear-ending this Frito truck on the way over. So the officers come, and that takes forever. And I was like crying. I'm like, oh my gosh, my car, everything, this is terrible. And it wasn't even noon yet. <laughs> oh. Uh, it was it was a rough morning. Yeah. So then you did end up making it to the library later on. I did. Yeah. So I uh, I went ahead and just dropped my car off. Like I'm gonna deal with that later. I gotta get to this. So I I called up my girlfriend. She's like freaking out. Oh my gosh, are you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, listen, I'm fine. I need you to take me to this library. What did you think of the the stories that you heard about the? about the ghosts and about the library. It's not really something I would say that I necessarily believe in until recently. Undeterred, Jackson went on to capture the atmosphere around the library. Pages rustling, doors closing, the cavernous stairwell. Quickly he noticed something wasn't right. His equipment started glitching out, his mics playing up, laptop rebooting. And eventually, all of the files vanished. So I head back to Greg's office, and I'm just chatting with him, and I'm packing all my, all my stuff up, and we're just having small talk. Mm-hmm. And he, he's asking me about how, how the sound effects went. I was like, oh, yeah, it was, it was a struggle. I, um, for some reason, it wasn't working in certain areas. 
And then it occurred to me about the story he told about how I guess they had a film crew that came in and then the footage got deleted. Right. So he brings that up. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't really believe in stuff like that. And he was like, well, where were you? Where, where, where were you whenever your mic wasn't working? So I was like, oh, well, I was over there on the staircase. He's like, well, I want to show you something. I was like, okay. So he pulls me over to his desk and he opens up his computer and he goes to their website. Mm -hmm. And he shows me this picture. And it's a figure that's standing where my computer was sitting two nights prior. A figure, I, I can't explain it. I wish I had the picture and I'm way too scared to go and find it. Right. And that's when I told him, I'm going to head out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you just had to get out of there. Yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah, I totally understand. Come back and visit. <laughs> <laughs> After you sort of saw what the library was like and had those experiences, did you feel like the accident you were in earlier was connected in some way? Yes, 100%. Just the way that it played out. Like I said, I've never gotten in a wreck. I have never even gotten close it was almost like something was telling me not to go. Mm -hmm. My mics weren't working. It was something was telling me, you don't need to be here. It's a strange thing to be popular for. And if somebody had told me when I was in library school that I was going to end up being a PR person for a ghost, I would have told them they were crazy. We always do like to encourage people that we're still a public library and that we're here year-round and while, you know, it's great that we have this famous resident, we're also here to be a full-service public library. And, you know, that's truly our mission. And we love telling the, the story of the Grey Lady. We, we love talking about that legend, whether we believe in her or not. It's a great way for people to connect with a library. And if people like it and it's fun, then we're going to keep doing it. That's what we do. Thank you to Greg Hager and Rhonda Mort from the Willard Library. And of course, Jackson Fleming, our intrepid sound recordist, who stopped at nothing to get this story. If you'd like to see the Grey Lady for yourself, head over to willardghost.com to join the hunt. You're listening to Anything But Silent from the British Library. And from Ghosts in Indiana, our final story takes us to one of the most magical sites in England. You might know it for a certain music festival, or perhaps its famous abbey, or the Tor, a hill that rises rather ominously over the landscape, steeped in Celtic mythology. I am, of course, talking about Glastonbury. And tucked behind the high street, there's a place where modern magic is very much alive. It's called the Library of Avalon. I'm Penny Billington, and I'm chair of the trustees of the Library of Avalon, which we're just approaching now. As you come from the bottom of the high street, we come through one courtyard and then into a back secret courtyard where everything is embellished to make it look beautiful and spiritual. We've got a tree that's decorated with clutes, we would call wishing spell pieces of uh, cloth. We've got quartz crystals embedded into the walls. It's like magic coming to life. When I first came to Glastonbury, I had a bit of a brainstorm because 
even the sign says, welcome to Glastonbury, the magical island of Avalon. And I thought, it can't exist. It can't really exist in the real world. But people really try to make this into a wonderful spiritual experience for people. And of course, the library provides them with the books to do it. So, shall we go inside? Passing a large statue of a dragon in the courtyard, the Library of Avalon sits in a former chapel building on the ancient part of the Abbey Wall. Today, it's one of the only publicly accessible esoteric libraries in Europe. And inside, it's equally as impressive, with books crammed floor to ceiling in a small, beamed space. We see this as the latest incarnation of the great Abbey Library which was so important uh, pre-Henry VIII and might be one of the reasons why the Abbey had its special privileges. It had a huge library, therefore it attracted many scholars, had a lot of arcane documents and fragments of manuscripts because, of course, library abbeys collected everything. You know, a bundle of Greek manuscripts, a bit of papyri, who knows what was in them. We do have visiting scholars, we have pilgrims, just as the ancient abbey would have done. Uh, and of course, we've got the tourists who just want a bit of respite from the high street. When I came to Glastonbury visiting, I always used to come to the library and I promised myself that if I moved down here, I would volunteer at the library. And I've been here about 10 years since then. Lining the room, books range from astrology to reincarnation. Penny gave us a tour. So immediately beneath these ancient beams, right high up here, we've got etheric bodies, light bodies, chakra and kundalini, leading on to um, astral projection techniques. Um, and uh, we've got reincarnation, another section below, magic and esoteric practice, types of magic, history of magic, crystal gazing, cartomancy, tarot. Uh, it's wonderful. Our collection is very special because every single book has been donated. And when you get some of the founding scholars laying down the basis of the collections, you can get some very interesting books. What I love about the old occultists is that they were intensely practical people. Everyone today goes for the magic and the sparkles and the hair running across the field, but actually they really had their feet on the ground. Dion Fortune, whom I'm going to read from, uh, I'd like to think was rather like a stern headmistress of the occult uh, and a very effective magical worker. This is from Sane Occultism. What is occultism? Very few of those who are interested pause to ask themselves what occultism really is. They may know that the word occult means hidden and that esoteric which is often used as its synonym means for the few. If they put the two together, they may conclude, and rightly, that occult science is really a branch of knowledge which is hidden from the many and reserved for the few. Penny, like many of the volunteers working with the library, was drawn to Avalon as part of her own spiritual journey, or what she calls the yearning. She identifies as a modern druid, I've been a Druid in the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids for nearly 30 years now, and I'm an author on Druid subjects, so I'm happy that the library carries my books. I'm a Druid who also studies the Kabbalah, because Druids love trees. The Kabbalah is the tree of life, the great glyph that explains the mysteries of the universe, really, in diagrammatic form. I identify 
people I have something in common with by saying they have the yearning, a yearning for something other than the world of the five senses. And so people go searching in all sorts of ways and they go to religions, they go to spiritualities. And I tried several different spiritual ideas before I found Druidry, because when I went to other systems, I found they originated from China or India, and I live in England. I wanted something that I could bed into and not have to change my diet or my habits or that fitted in with the cycle of the seasons as I experienced them. And I found that in Druidry, which is really a local spirituality wherever you are, and believing that the whole of nature has spirit in it. I do rituals and workshops and uh, also I'm uh, part of a local grove of Druids. We're called the Ash Grove because we meet under an ash tree and we celebrate eight festivals a year. Um, being a Druid is like being a Morris dancer. Everyone thinks you're sort of a bit weird but no one would uh, question your right to be in England and be a Druid. The figure of the wise Druid is sort of archetypal but also a bit of a figure of fun, you know. I, if I wear a white robe, maybe I look a bit silly to people, you know. And if you make people smile, that puts you in a really strong position to actually to go around and do exactly as you wish, you know. I don't want to be spooky or powerful. I am spooky and powerful, but why would I want to appear that to other people? And, you know, if I'm just a pleasant person that they can smile at and think I'm eccentric, but in a particularly British way, so that's all right. Yeah, they let me do whatever I want. It's wonderful. <laughs> Glastonbury is a place of allowing. You can have ideas here that people would look askance at in Derby or Burton-on-Trent. And I know that because I've lived in those places. It is easier here to allow your mind to expand and to play with the ideas of what is real and what is not, what's real experience, what's subjective experience. So if I say I've been talking to a tree, or I can time travel, or I can go back to an ancient place, or talk to a person who's dead, in what sense do I mean that? And these books try and help me explain where the boundaries are between my subjective reality and the way I join the consensual world. And it seems to me that in Glastonbury, what people think is their minds are a free place. And providing they stay well socialised and well grounded and don't do anything in the street that frighten the horses, they're actually allowed to think and make these portals and boundary places for themselves. Allow your rational mind just to rest and your intuitive senses to reach out to the wider and invisible world and just see what happens. And the books in this place help you to do that. <laughs>
And you'll also be less freaked out when unexplained things happen. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit subscribe and let us know what you think by leaving us a review. If you have your own library ghost story or occult connection, I want to hear about it. Remember, the British Library, like many libraries around the world, is free and is open to everyone. We're based at St. Pancras in London and Boston Spa in Yorkshire, and at bl.uk, where you can explore our collection from wherever you are. Anything But Silent is a Pixie U production. We'll be back in two weeks with our accompanying series, Joining the Library, when we'll hear from rapper, author, and podcaster, Blind Boy, who will be sharing a book that's inspired his thoughts on the surreal, magical, and otherworldly. But until then, from me, Cleo Laskarin, thanks for listening. Thank you.